into a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial. Streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. Now, I'm going to be speaking um, shortly with Lisa Newman from the um, the CPSU. But first of all, I'm going to give a little bit of an intro about the show. Um, first up, we've got Lisa Newman, who is the Deputy National President of the CPSU, the Community and Public Sector. And we're going to be speaking with Lisa, um, not only about workers' rights, but also looking um, at a Centrelink contract that um, is going to be organising for Serco to be um, on board here. So the CPSU has condemned the Turnbull government for its decision to allow multinational company Serco to operate a Centrelink call centre, saying the move will put thousands of vulnerable Australians at risk. And basically, we're going to be covering um, quite a few issues about that. Um, the CPSU is deeply concerned at the prospect of Centrelink clients being dealt with by a company that runs private prisons and Australia's immigration detention centres. And as listeners are aware, we do cover um, CETICO sometimes, um, not just CETICO, but the issues that arise with a private operator um, handling sensitive information and so forth. Um, after that, we're going to be doing a pre-record um, with... Um, a, a man called James from the Refugee Action Collective. He's actually an activist and he is is going to be talking about his arrest and discussing a court case that happened on the 11th October um, and working out what's happening with that, all because he helped um, an asylum seeker and he he attended a protest. So things are getting, are getting dire, aren't they, about civil liberties. So, yeah, I'll leave you with that for now and I'll be going into um, some announcements shortly and we'll speak with Lisa um, very soon. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. It's still the case in this country today. 
This is 3CR. And you're back with the Doing Time show. Um, Lisa is going to be speaking with us shortly from the CPSU. And I gave a brief intro about that topic earlier on, as listeners are aware, in case you've just tuned in. Um, hello, Lisa. Welcome to the program. Oh, hi. How are you? Good, thanks. It's lovely to have you. Now, Lisa, it's interesting, isn't it, um, because... I mentioned on the show that we were going to be talking about workers' rights, and that's that's terribly important, isn't it? Mm. But, absolutely. Absolutely. But also talking about the background of what's happening with mm. the Turnbull government's decision to place Certico, um, you know, within these Centrelink call centres, not only eroding workers' rights, but also affecting the vulnerable clients who need specially trained staff. Could you give us a little bit of background, Lisa, about what's happening? Yeah, well, look, what we've seen is a classic um, government playbook. You uh, underfund and defund services. The service standard drops and then that hits the newspapers, and which it has for the last couple of years. There's been service um, delivery failures left, right and centre. Uh, and then you use those service delivery failures to justify outsourcing to private companies or labour hire companies, the provision of services. And that's essentially what the government's announcement after the last budget signalled. So um, this government is filled with rank hypocrisy. It uh, talks about low wage growth when it's denied its own workforce right across the APS pay rises for up to four years. Uh, it talks about job creation while uh, taking uh, immediate and direct steps to sell the jobs, uh, quality jobs, out of communities right across the country. And um, it is alarming and everybody should be alarmed about what this uh, potentially means for uh, the most vulnerable Australians who depend on the services that are provided by the Department of Human Services. So besides 250 full-time equivalent staff being being effectively uh, taken away, right? Mm-hmm. Besides that, how does that affect the Centrelink clients? Well, the first point I would make is the 250-person um, uh, contract that Serco have won is a pilot. So yep. it is um, potentially only the start of this. Still. And... Um, what we know is that the work that the Department of Human Services does is quite unique. Um, it is not, they're not selling um, uh, mobile phone plans. They're not selling uh, services in the traditional sense of the word. Um, they are actually supporting people who are, uh, in many cases, dealing with immediate crises. So... Um, the only way that a private provider can make money out of those services is on the lowest transactions, uh, transactional uh, interactions that sure. occur. So what they're saying is that people that are um, 
doing very transactional things like updating their details. Um, this is the work that will go out to Serco, which will free people up to do more complex work. However, um, we know that uh, we have seen over 5,000 staff drop out of this department over the last five years, and uh, every budget announcement that we have seen uh, we see thousand a thousand jobs at least go out of this department. So the organisational capacity to deal with the customer demands that are complex is decreasing at a rapid rate of knots as well. Absolutely, and and in fact, you know, since unions have started being dismantled since this government has come in, it's going to happen even more, isn't it? Look, I think there are. Um, you know, there are real um, questions that need to be asked about the future of uh, services and having an organisation of uh, Circo's nature and reputation. I mean, it's a, it's a British-owned multinational company. Its business model is basically one um, of predatory um uh, acquisition of public services right around the world. This is basically what it does. And every time, everything it touches um, uh, results in diminishing uh, services to the community because it's got no interest in uh, delivering services that that are complex and actually, you know, that we have to pay for. So we would have much preferred to see the government make an investment in the Australian community. Um, what we uh, now see out of this um, decision is for them to essentially transfer taxpayers' money to the profits of a foreign-owned multinational company. And they need to be condemned for that. Absolutely. And, and it, it's it's critical, isn't it? You know, public services are going to go down, there will be no accountability and, you know, people who are on Centrelink, a lot of them are, are vulnerable people and and that's that includes not only people that have come out of prison but people with disabilities, isn't it? Um, oh, look, yep. absolutely. There are, you know, um, the Department of Human Services deals with a whole host of um, interactions with the community and every Australian has to deal with the Department of of human services at least once in their life. Um, our union has been very proactive and a lot of what we do is purely defending uh, public services. We've had to push back on Medicare privatisation. Um, that is ever going to be a risk while we have got a side of politics that is ambivalent about the role of the universal um uh, Medicare health uh, system. So uh, this is just an extension of, uh, I guess, the conservative orthodoxy, which is uh, small government outsourcing what it can to yeah. um, its private sector mates. Lisa, it's it's very true. And, you know, quite often on this show, we um, discuss quite extensively the fact that public spending is going into um, employing private operators or outsourcing to private operators and also not building communities like building prisons instead? Oh, look, um, that's right. And we know that uh, public service jobs and 
any level of public service, be it local government, state government or federal government, those jobs are actually really good jobs and they they contribute to the well-being and the economic stability of uh, communities all around the country. And the Department of Human Services, for example, has over um, 650 sites and the... The reason that we know that the 250-person CERCO contract is only going to be a start is that there were 42 million unanswered calls into Centrelink last financial year. And by my rough calculations, that would mean that every single CERCO person would need to answer 160,000 calls a year. That is not going to happen. No. So... Uh, this is just the start and what it does, those people are going to be paid probably less than half of what an APS worker will do, which means that that is money that is going to go into the profits of CERCO instead of going back into the Australian community. Yeah, so, you know, tax-avoiding, multinational, parasitic type of behaviour. Well, I tell you what, if you were a, a CERCO shareholder, you would be, uh, you'd be very pleased in this announcement, uh, but uh, most of us aren't. Most mm. of us are just the bunnies that when we need government services, we, we actually need them where we live and we need them to be effectively delivered, and that's what's going to suffer. Yeah, they don't even have proper training to, to, to resolve people's problems there, the CERCO. Well, I doubt it. Well, training costs money, and uh, if you're a for-profit organisation, what's the incentive to um, provide it? Correct. We know that uh, most of the service failures that Circo has been involved in have uh, been of a direct consequence to the fact that uh, they they have poorly paid and poorly trained staff, and you know their operations in prisons. And uh, and detention centres has been, you know, subject to uh, a lot of scrutiny and a lot of concern and criticism. It is not something that you want to see. Um, uh, it's not the kind of organisation that should be dealing with any vulnerable people, yet alone uh, the, the numbers of vulnerable Australians right across this country. Absolutely, and I was—I'm just having a look at the media release that the CPSU has sent out, and I was quite taken with the last sentence here. It's telling that the Defence Department is currently taking the reverse approach, bringing work back in-house because it offers higher quality work at a lower cost. Look, I think it is. I mean, it is yeah. really telling, and yeah. um, what we. Uh, you know, we will be working with our friends in the Labor Party to make sure that they understand that uh, when they come into government, and it is a when uh, question as opposed to an if question, that um, they uh, strike out in a different direction. Because Definitely. these these kind of arrangements actually don't stand up. Uh, they don't pass uh, economic scrutiny. They certainly don't... Um, past the public interest scrutiny that they deserve. And I think it is incredibly short-sighted and um, poor judgment by uh, Minister Tudge, um, who essentially is just selling good jobs uh, to a foreign-owned multinational without any uh, 
without any reason or cause to. And not to mention not just the four-year wage freeze as well, to mention mm. that, and the wholesale cuts as we've, as we've spoken about. So there's a shroud of secrecy, obviously, surrounding this backroom deal. Um, what's, what's going to happen? Will you be meeting with, with the CPSU, be meeting with the government? Look, we, we've um, been talking about this issue with um, uh, the department, but the problem with these kind of arrangements with private sector um, service uh, delivery is that they're, they're shrouded in commercial and confidence arrangements. So um, we know that uh, this contract's worth about $53 million and... Um, we know that it's a three-year contract and um, I think it's going to be very difficult for us or anybody else uh, to get the government to release any further information um, because they will simply claim that it's commercial and confidence, which means that it doesn't get the public scrutiny that it deserves. And again, that's why... You know, uh, we're very pleased that Labor's come out uh, quite quickly to say that this is uh, an appalling decision and we'll be working with them to uh, make sure that they, uh, uh, as soon as possible, uh, reverse the decision because um, the reality is the only way that this is going to reverse is with a change of government. Yeah, look, I'm not surprised, Lisa, to, to be perfectly honest. Look, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Um, are there any final comments that you'd like to make? I mean, even in terms of people um, having a look at the website of the CPSU or any information? Look, absolutely. If people want to support our campaign to protect jobs, um, they can go onto our website and uh, there is plenty of information plenty of information there. Um, they've even got the opportunity to donate to our campaign if they have the capacity to do so. Um, whatever you can give uh, would be great. Um, the other thing that I would say is for those of the, for those of your audience that can, um, there are some questions that uh, local members of parliament need to be asked, whether or not they're Labor or uh, uh, Conservative. Uh, what we know is that when services are removed or downgraded, it's, we have to fight like hell to get them back. But we're up for that fight and um, we're determined to uh, protect the community services that uh, our, our communities uh, rely on and also um, our, you know, the vital work that our members undertake. So thanks so much for inviting me on. Absolutely. Thank you, Lisa. It's been an honour. Thanks a lot. Good on you. Thank, Thanks. Take care. And that was Lisa Newman from the CPSU speaking about um, Centrelink contract, a disastrous Centrelink contract. Yet again, another cut from the Turnbull government to um, outsource um, Centrelink to Serco, uh, not only um, jeopardising and taking away jobs, but also um, affecting vulnerable people. We'll be going on to our next interview, which Peter has prepared. Um, in regards to an activist who was arrested. From, he, this man is from the Refugee Action, Action Collective, James. Um, we'll be speaking with James shortly. But um, I'll just leave you with an announcement for now. 
3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. And you're back with the Doing Time show. In April this year, the government attempted to deport a 60-year-old um, asylum seeker by the name of Seed, a stateless refugee back to Iraq. Activists held a blockade at Mita, and James Crafty, a long-standing member of the Refugee Action Collective, was involved in a picket line to prevent Seed from being deported to danger. Rather than question the legality and morality of the government's inhumane refugee policy, Victoria Police chose to arrest James. And Peter has prepared um, an interview um, speaking with James uh, to, to talk about what happened. Um, here's the interview now. Helping refugees is not a crime. We're in the studio. We have um, James from Refugee Action Collective. Is that right? Yes. Um, who went to court on Wednesday, the October the eleventh, after Victoria Police arrested him. He stood in solidarity with. Um, as activists were charged with trying to stop the government carrying out a cruel and inhumane deportation. Hi, James. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Um, Can you tell listeners what happened and why you were arrested? Sure. So um, there was a refugee, or there is a refugee, called Saeed. Um, He's 60 years old. Uh, He's a stateless refugee, and the government wanted to deport him uh, from Australia to Iraq. Mm. Uh, And this is despite the fact that he didn't want to go back, despite the fact that his brother was found to be a refugee and his brother arrived on the same boat as him. Um, And this is despite the fact that the Iraqi government had put out a statement saying that they didn't want to accept him back into Iraq and so that would be illegal for the government to do so. So we organised a um, protest at the Broadmeadows Detention Centre and during that we checked cars going out of the detention centre to ensure that the government wasn't uh, deporting uh, Saeed. Um, And what happened during the course of that protest is that several of the Department of Immigration officials got um, particularly narky um, and drove into the protest. Did they? Uh, Yeah, including myself. And so when they they drove into me, Mm. um, I ended up doing the only sort of knee-jerk thing um, I could do, which was to end up on top of the vehicle. Um, And then rather than charging the uh, driver of the vehicle for running me over, Mm. the police thought it much more um, worthy to, to charge me with property damage for damage yeah for damaging his vehicle for you know him running me over yeah like targeting the protesters more yeah than the um it was a direct action wasn't it it was a direct action it was yeah aimed at, at trying to to prevent this deportation from occurring so were people 
on the road and stuff, sitting on the road? Or uh, we weren't on the road. We were just outside the gate of the detention centre and oh, yeah. um, we weren't um, preventing cars from getting in or out but simply checking in the back seats to ensure uh, that Saeed was not in there and that they weren't trying to smuggle him out uh, to deport him. Oh, right. Um, and so that would literally only take a few seconds of the guards' times, but because you know these are people who are obviously very much in favour of the detention policy that they carry out, um, they didn't want to wait 10 seconds for us to check the back of their car and, and just want to drive into us and, and get out. So you were charged with, um, like, um, property damage and stuff? Well, so I was initially charged with three um, charges, um, uh, blocking the roadway, yeah. um, and as well as that uh, property damage um, and assault. And when, um, however, when we went into court on Wednesday, mm. um, they were so desperate to try and get me to plead to something that they moved from these quite hefty charges of yeah. property damage and assault and instead um, they added two extra charges um, and encouraged me to plead guilty to those, um, which was just basically um, tampering with a vehicle. So the difference between tampering with a vehicle and property damage or the property damage I was charged with is, is, the, is the difference between 10 years in jail as a maximum and two weeks in jail as a maximum. Wow, really? Um, so, yeah, and that was literally just sort of thrown at us when we walked into court mm. um, because, you know, up until that point they tried to get me to plead guilty to a much greater crime and, and I, I wasn't prepared to do that. So what was the outcome with the court case? So the outcome was that they kept saying, um, look, you know, we're going to accuse you of this, that and the other and all sorts of things yeah. in relation to the property damage and claiming that I banged on the vehicle, that I was swearing at them, that they had reason to fear for their lives, all this nonsense. <laughs> um, and so what ended up happening is they said, look, if you plead guilty to this tampering, we'll, we'll make it so that the summary that the judge gets to hear is... Um, something that much more minor, and so yeah. what they did is they said, "Look, if you agree to tampering, um, we'll we'll rewrite the summary with you." And like that just shows, I guess, how how little interest they have in in actually putting forward the truth is that they're happy to change it or happy to throw enough mud till it sticks and then and then fall back. Yeah. Uh, so so. Um, at the end, the magistrate gave an indication. She said, "Look, if you plead guilty to this watered down." Thing, um, then you'll get uh, $600 in fines, right. uh, 200 to which will go to uh, the um, Refugee Council of Australia, which, great. The, good, yeah. the, the other $400 goes to the, the bastard who drove over me, not so great. No. Um, but, you know, $600 and no conviction. So we could have fought it out and we could have um, fought all of it, but if we'd done that, then they would have gone with all of the mud that they were going into the, the pre-court with, you know, all of the, the ridiculous accusations and we could have lost. So yeah. we, we chose to to cop that one sweet, which is unfortunate um, in a sense, but in another, um, you know, just, you know, they keep pushing at you and we, we wanted to, to just get out of there with as minimal damage as possible. Yep. So can you uh, talk to us about, like, Regard, um, refugees and asylum seekers in general, like um, 
MITRE and... Sure, sure. So um, MITRE um, is um, the detention centre at Broadmeadows. It's inside a, a military uh, base and there's um, a lot of refugees, uh, several hundred who are there at the moment um, and is often a place that they use um, to then transfer people back to Nauru, Manus Island... Yeah. Um, etc. Um, you know, so I mean, the, the the refugee policy at the moment is is just incredibly unstable, and the government doesn't seem to really have much of a plan about it. Mm. Um, you know, Papua New Guinea has shown humanity where Australia's failed, and their High Court has found the detention centre illegal. So that's needing to shut down, and and they're looking at similar things on Nauru. Yeah. Uh, but then at the same time, they've got nowhere to house the refugees. They're saying they're refusing to resettle them here. Mm. Um, and then the refugees who they've got here, they're threatening to deport a lot of them because um, they didn't fill out these ridiculous um, legal documents. So there was a caseload of um about 5,000 refugees who um, had to fill out these 90-page documents by the start of October, and um, at least 500 of them haven't done that, and then no doubt there'll be some you know, technical errors with some of them, so they're being deported. So yep. it's, it, it's quite a quagmire where these uh, people, um, you know, we've got more refugees now than we had um, coming out of World War II mm. um, in the world, and we've got the Australian government um, refusing to, to take even a pittance of that number, and these people are essentially in limbo um, in both Australia and in offshore detention. Yeah, I just went there yesterday to my turn, just a visit, and one guy said he's, there's four to a room now in his, um, like, where he stays. So it's pretty full on. Yeah, I mean the, the the things they do to just sort of make things a bit harder. Um, yeah, that's on, right. on on Christmas Island, sorry, on um, Manus Island, uh, recently they just decided to close the canteen there, which means yeah. that all the guys there can't get access to smokes, and you know the government gets them addicted and they're they're, they're stressed out of their mind because they're in detention for unlimited periods of time. So they all start smoking, and then the government one day turns around to them and goes, "Yep, you're all going to have to go cold turkey." So, like, yeah, it's true. just, yeah, all of that little stuff really builds up to the picture as well. Yeah, in my um, the even they had the, those food regulations now that before we could bring in anything you want, and now you have to bring things with the um, use-by date and <laughs> packaged food, and it's really bad. Yeah, it, it's it's all about control, and control, it, it, you know, yeah. you go in there and they they talk about these people as their clients, but they're not clients; they're prisoners. They're, yeah, they're prisoners. They're, that's yeah. it. Um, so there's was there more people at the got arrested there, or uh, I was the only person that got arrested on on this occasion. There was oh. um, about a hundred people throughout the course of the few days who were were um, protesting and picketing, etc. But um, then they sort of went after me as, as a sort of individual. And, oh, okay. Yeah. More outspoken sort of thing or something. Luck, just... of, the, luck of the draw. I mean, I was, just the, <laughs> I, I, I was just the guy on the bonnet. And, oh, right. And, yeah. And th- when did that um, rally happen, like the yeah. actual protest? Yeah, so that was um, a few days over the end of March. Yeah. Um, sort of 21st, 22nd, and then 23rd, I think, was the day that I got arrested. 
Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's another thing too is that, you know, the the way the courts work is is they just they hold these things over your head for so long. Yeah, that's you know, true. It's just like they grind you down and, you, you know, you don't know whether you're going to end up with a jail sentence or, or what have you yeah. uh, for months and months and months rather than being able to sort of defend yourself and get these things over with. I mean, so, you know, in those um, months, Saeed, the guy who we were trying to rescue at the time, has since been deported mm. um, and is now in Iraq in hiding um, oh, in in a very so, sick condition, yeah. um, and you know all the stuff that I, I'm busy having to to fight for my own situation. Yeah. When we should be able to focus our attention on these refugees who who really need our help. And that's true. Yeah. And um, so he went to Sydney for, um, for a while, didn't he? Yeah. So while I was um, actually in the the jail cell. They um, drove him up to, to Sydney, um, oh, seven, 17 hours to Sydney, to right. Villawood, where they kept him there for several months um, mm. before then finally um, trying and successfully deporting him back to or to Iraq. Yeah, what, he was in hosp- a hospital, wasn't he? Or? He, w- he was in hospital for some of the time. Um, yeah. He, I mean, he was, he's an elderly man, uh, someone who'd been also on hunger strike for a period of time, which... Yep. Um, would have also caused him a level of, of physical damage as well, just you know, going through that whole process. And what I, as I recall, there was some of the doctors didn't want to deport him or something like that. I think um, there may have been uh, several medical staff who, who um, were against um, his deportation. Certainly, there have been for others. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I mean, he was a sick man. He he's someone who. Friends of mine who are still in touch with him now um, through Facebook and social media and so on, yeah. um, and every time they hear from him, all he he talks about um, is how sick he is, and and he should have yeah never been deported really in the yeah. first place. Yep. Is there any final um, comments you'd like to talk about? Yeah. Well, I guess you know. I mean, there's this irony in having to, um, you know plead guilty and, and, and all the rest of it, yeah. uh, when when the people who are actually committing the crimes, which is the Australian government in deporting these people, the guards, true, both yeah. in, in terms of their detaining of him and then also in running me over, you know, mm. these people don't face court and that's why we, you know, we can't rely on, on police, etc., to, to do the right thing. It comes down to ordinary people standing up to... Um, Injustice, etc., and you know the the fight for refugees will very much go on. Yeah. So, do you know um, where people can um, go to, like, do more actions for refugees and stuff like that? Sure. So they can get involved with the Refugee Action Collective um, Victoria. Yeah. Uh, we meet um, at the Australian Nurses Federation building every Monday evening at six thirty. Yep. Um, if people want to come there or check us out on our website or Facebook. All right, thanks very much for that, James. Nice, thank you. Thanks. And also there's a Solidarity Defence Fund for um, James and activists. It, it's um, it's um, The website is https. org slash project slash solidarity Solidarity and Defence Fund Standing Appeal. Um, so you can go to that and um, like donate some money for the Defence Fund.
That was Bridget Hanley with Still Lives. For one night only, the Great Forest National Park is coming alive at Howler, Brunswick, October 29th at 7pm. Celebrate our diverse Victorian wilderness through provoking forest projections and performances by Shane Howard, Zach Sabre and DJ Dillian Page. 
All proceeds go towards the Wooden Society's work on the Great Forest National Park campaign. Tickets are just $25 from Moshtix. That's moshtix.com.au. Just search for Howler. So come and enjoy a unique night out and be wilder. Be Wilder is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. So you just heard a pre-recorded interview with uh, James, with James, who's an activist from the Refugee Action Collective, and that pre-recorded interview was uh, organised by Peter. And after that, as he announced, you heard a song by Bridget Hanley. It's approximately 4.41, so we've got about 20 minutes left of our show. And I just wanted to read out a very quick article that I thought might be of interest to listeners. Um, And it's from The Guardian. It's a recent article. And it's entitled, Anti-abortion protesters Protesters have acted with impunity for decades. That ends now. In a victory for women's rights, a demonstrator has been found guilty of breaching safe access zones in Victoria. International Women's Day March. The court's decision is a victory for women's rights upholding the right to access health services free of intimidation or harassment and with due respect for women's privacy, dignity and reproductive autonomy. Uh, yeah, sorry, we just had some technical difficulties there. So, yeah, so that was that article is, is actually on in um, October, was actually on the 13th of October. A 14-year-old girl, scared and vulnerable, realises that she is pregnant. A 43-year-old unemployed mother of five, whose husband is recently deceased, discovers she is pregnant and does not know how she will cope with another child. A 36-year-old woman with a planned pregnancy is processing a diagnosis of severe fetal abnormality. Each year, many Australian women deal with problem pregnancies. Some decide to continue with the pregnancy and some decide to terminate the pregnancy. Whatever the decision, they have a right to seek unbiased professional counselling and appropriate medical care, and they have a right to do so without being harassed, intimidated or interfered with as they are entering a clinic that provides the full range of reproductive health services. This is why Victoria's Safe Access Zone legislation, which prohibits certain conduct within 150 metres of a clinic at which abortions are provided, is so important. Law banning protests near abortion clinics faces constitutional challenge. In the Melbourne Magistrates Court this week, anti-abortion protester Kathleen Club became the first person to be convicted of breaching Victoria's safe access zone legislation when she approached a couple entering a clinic and attempted to hand them anti-abortion pamphlets. The 51-year-old mother of 13, an active member of the anti-choice group known as Helpers of God's Precious Infants, was found guilty of prohibited behaviour within a safe access zone outside the fertility control clinic in East Melbourne and was fined $5,000. The court's decision is a victory for women's rights, upholding the right to access health services free of intimidation of harassment and with due respect for women's privacy, dignity and reproductive autonomy. A not guilty verdict would have inevitably led to further testing of the parameters of the legislation, which would have seen patients and staff outside abortion clinics once again become the subjects of targeted harassment. 
We are all too aware of what that testing would entail and the devastating effect it would have on patients and staff. In recent months, we have been interviewing staff at Victorian clinics to gauge the effectiveness of the safe access zones. We have heard that before the zones were established, protesters would intrude into the personal space of patients and staff, block patients from exiting, exiting cars and bar entry to clinics or access along footpaths outside clinics. They would display graphic imagery of dismembered fetuses, thrust brochures and fetal dolls into people's hands and provide frightening misinformation about the consequences of abortion. Their unwelcome intrusions were described as a form of gender-based vilification comparable to racial vilification and violence against women. The protesters created an atmosphere of stress and stigmatisation and made staff and patients feel unsafe. Their actions were particularly damaging for women with a history of sexual or physical violence or other vulnerabilities. Anti-abortion process action has created barriers to access, particularly in rural and regional areas. Some patients have delayed treatment or failed to attend follow-up appointments in order to avoid the protesters and some have continued with problem pregnancies because they have not been able to access the health care that they require. We have been told about doctors who stopped terminating pregnancies and health services that ceased operating because of the activities of anti-abortion protesters. Never mind America, access to abortion is a nightmare for many Australians. Safe access zones in Victoria have been operating to prevent protesters from targeting individuals. Protesters remain free to express their views about abortion, but at a distance from clinic patients and staff. Staff working in clinics have described safe access zones as an acknowledgement of women's equality and autonomy and the need to address gender-based vilification and violence against women. Victoria's safe access zones legislation protects rights which have been undermined by anti-abortion protesters with impunity for decades. It is clear that Club and the Helpers of God's Pressured Infants oppose the legislation and its operation. For others contemplating anti-abortion protest within a safe access zone, Magistrate Louisa Bazzani's decision has sent an important message of deterrence. It is to be hoped that the four Australian states who have yet to introduce such such protective measures will act to prioritise women's right to health, privacy and dignity and will introduce safe access zones in the near future. Dr Tanya Penovic and Dr Ronley Sifris are senior lecturers at the Monash University Faculty of Law and Deputy Directors of the Carsten Centre for Human Rights. So it would be interesting to interview them at 3CR sometime, whether it be on this show um, or another show. And I included this article because I felt like it was terribly important um, for listeners to have access to this information. Imagine what it would be like for a woman inside who um, who was pregnant and needed to have a termination. We might need to look at that um, further down the track. It's approximately 5.47 and um, we're nearing the end of our show. Um... I'm going to be playing you now We Have Survived by No Fixed Address. And that'll be coming up. That'll be coming up very soon.
back with the Doing Time show 3CR in case you've just tuned in www.3cr.org.au and uh, that's streaming live. It's approximately 4.51 and uh, I wanted to thank our guests for coming onto the show. Thank you to Lisa Newman from the CPSU and thank you also to James from the Refugee Action Collective. Um, Our show is podcast so if uh, listeners have missed out or part of the show they can download that um, at a you know next week sometime, and 
Yeah, so, and you also heard an article from The Guardian as as well. And The Guardian, it was an excellent article, actually, um, talking about a court decision about the safe access zone legislation and using that legislation to uh, convict a woman who um, was harassing uh, women who were wanting to undergo terminations uh, outside the clinic, a much-needed uh, legislation. It's approximately 4.52, and uh, I'll just go into an announcement. Actually, what I'd really like to do, because it's just so important to be committed to forest issues, is play again that announcement in case listeners missed out about the upcoming forest fundraiser. For one night only, the Great Forest National Park is coming alive at Howler, Brunswick, October 29th at 7pm. Celebrate our diverse Victorian wilderness through provoking forest projections and performances by Shane Howard, Zach Sabre and DJ Dillian Page. All proceeds go towards the Wilderness Society's work on the Great Forest National Park campaign. Tickets are just $25 from Moshtix. That's moshtix.com.au. Just search for Howler. So come and enjoy a unique night out and be wilder. Be wilder is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, Shane Howard is just so awesome. Yeah, you're back in the with the Doing Time show, and it's approximately four fifty four, and it's goodbye from uh, Marissa. We're going to be back with our um, back next Monday, every Monday from four to five. Um, tune into the Doing Time show, and we'll be going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, uh, White Fella, and do turn up, see if you can rock up to some of those. Refugee Action Collective meetings um, every Monday. It's it's terribly important. Um, if people want to find out more about the Refugee Action Collective, uh, do do Google um, and find the website because it, it really is very very important and quite a quite a um, an informative show today because it talks talks a lot about Serco as well, private operator. Um, very, very ugly to um, privatise and outsource services, which is what um, the government is basically doing. Anyway, stay safe and it's goodbye from the Doing Time team and thanks, thanks for your company. Bye. Take care. I'm